You're listening to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. Recovering muscles, of course, all kinds of movement, recovery, and fitness. I'm your host, Julie Reed. I'll bring information you can trust from maybe new-to-you sources. Today, I'm chatting with Maria Bassetta of the Southern Squeeze. Maria has 14 years coaching experience and is a NASM-certified personal trainer, has an MS in Health Promotion Management and Nutrition, her FMS Level 2, SFG1, Original Strength, Indian Club Specialist, and a Graduate Certificate in Nutrition Counseling. She says her role as a coach is to guide you, not tell you what to do. She believes that access to fitness and strength training empowers people and inspires them to live fuller and richer lives. Maria envisions and is committed to helping build a world where everyone has equal opportunity to embrace their strength and power. In this episode, Maria and I talk on all things the Southern Squeeze, the gym and the grip competition, what it takes to train for grip strength, developing powerful boundaries, and the Vietnamese dessert she craves regularly. Maria, thank you so much for being here today. Why don't you introduce yourself with the story of how you opened up the Southern Squeeze and how you got to where you are in the fitness space? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about this. I never thought I would have a gym and I never wanted a gym. So if we have like a couple hours, I'll get into the whole thing, but I'll try to make it brief. (laughs) I moved to Nashville in 2014, October of 2014, a city that I also never thought I would be in. I'm from Connecticut. I lived in DC for 14 years before moving here. And I moved to work for a nonprofit that was doing exercise and nutrition for low-income women and for-profit training in the morning. Um, And I met the owner of that at a conference, an original strength conference in North Carolina, and seemed like a great idea, seemed like a great organization. Student loan forgiveness, when you work for nonprofits, I was pretty much done working in big box gyms. I'd done that for a long time. Had a master's in nutrition counseling and health promotion behavior. So I was like, I can use all of these things. Moved here, I didn't know anybody. And the nonprofit, you know, it wasn't funded the way we thought it would it would be. And you can't get student loans if you're not an employee, forgiveness. So that didn't work out and I ended up having to start over. I was training and renting space at a gym in town in Nashville called Steps and teaching classes at some random gyms and just trying to build up clientele again. And Gil was looking for space. I wasn't really looking that much. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I, you know, what is, what about, what business plan? How are we going to, how can we make a thing? And long story short, he found a space that was affordable and, and we went for it. That's sort of the, the short, the short version, June of 2017. So a little bit over a year now. Yes, we opened up, it was technically May 23rd, 2017. That's when we, like, the mind body was running and we opened the doors and I had everything ready to go. And that was <laughs> the official open date. But I would say, yeah, it was been about one year and, and growing and growing slowly. And it's, it's been a lot of work, a lot of stress, but all of the best kind. Can you do a little bit of an intro as to who Gil is? Yeah. <laughs> Funny story. He, Gil's my partner. He's my boyfriend. Um, I met him on Tinder. We laugh about our first date and tell everyone the story because when I moved to Nashville, I didn't know anyone. I was working at a women's only gym and the nonprofit was women only. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to go on Tinder and go on some dates. Uh, he was probably like the fifth date I went on. And I wasn't really expecting to meet anybody. 
um, as great as him or that I, or that I really liked, I was just kind of like, let's, let's go on dates and see what happens. Let's get some free meals. Let's explore <laughs> Nashville a little bit. I didn't know anything about it. I was working a lot. And the first date we started talking about fitness, obviously, because that's my life. And he was a rock climber. He had, had recently been doing like some bodybuilding type hypertrophy workouts and a little bit of powerlifting and he was telling me about that and then we started talking about grip and I had some captains of crush grippers that I had used a little bit from my time training with Phil Cerrito when I was living in DC I would drive to Philly when I was training originally for my strong first certification with Phil so I had captains of crush grippers I never competed in grip. I just had them to even out my hands. And he was telling me about how he had bought the Captains of Crush number two and number three, and he was going to close them. And I was like, yeah, I have some of those. And he was like, no, no, no. Like, I don't, I don't think you know what those are. <laughs> I was like, no, I have some. I have like a one. I have a trainer. I have a sport. And he's like, no, I, I don't think that you know what I'm talking about. And we had this, I don't want to say argument, but it's kind of like, no, I really do. Like, I'll prove it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's how our that's how we met, and we're kind of inseparable since then. So I did have captains of crush grippers. I didn't know what I was talking about, obviously. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> that's where the name the Southern Squeeze came from. We decided one night in a bar. He was traveling in to Muncie, Indiana, and I had gone with him to visit or, or gone on a trip and we decided we were going to have a grip competition in Nashville because grip was cool and it was this unknown sport that nobody was doing and we called it the Southern Squeeze. So that's where the name came from for the gym. So let's actually, this is a great time to get into, I want to talk about both the Southern Squeeze, the gym and the competition and grip training. Mm-hmm. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about the gym, the Southern Squeeze very briefly, because now that we know how you got the name, let's talk about the visuals in the gym, that mural on the wall. What brought that about? Who is the artist? It's fantastic. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the mural is beautiful. It makes a, like a 900 square foot gym feel really big on the internet. <laughs> and it gives, it gives people something to look at. Um, the guy that did it, his name is Sterling. He works for Eastside Murals, which is in town. and. I think I just found him through Instagram. Uh, our logo, the snake wrapped around the gripper originally was from the grip competition. And that was based on sketches that we had done in a bar. We were drawing like, should it be a crab? It could be a snake. And, you know, we have this rattlesnake constricting a gripper and rattlesnakes don't constrict, I don't think, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so like, it doesn't really make sense, but it does. So we have this logo of the snake and then we wanted to make this really small space look really beautiful and we don't have mirrors. We had this big wall and, and we kind of just gave Sterling free reign to get creative with the grippers and some kettlebells and the snake that we had from the original logo and, and just said, go for it make it really colorful and beautiful. And it is. <laughs> if we ever move, it will be the thing I miss the most. It's, it is quite, quite remarkable to see it all the time on, on your Instagram. So um, it's definitely impressionable or, or is, it, it creates an impression. So do you focus a lot on grip in your classes or how do you, let's talk a little bit about what you do in your classes at the Southern Squeeze. I'm very inspired by Mark Fisher Fitness. They were um, 
mentors to me when I was trying to figure out where I was going in my own journey after leaving the nonprofit and trying to figure out what to do. And, and, uh, and also Dan John, I've read a lot of Dan John books. You know, we do a lot of the hinge squat, push, pull, carry train movements. It's general population. It's not athletes per se. Um, that's never been my, my favorite thing to program for. I really like beginners. Uh, so I, I wanted to create a space that was practical in, in training and top full movements rather than just, you know, bodybuilding programs or, or other things that are out there. And I, I program full body workouts. And we change them every six weeks. There's usually two. And it's, again, it's dependent on space because we're small. So we don't have a lot of room. So we use a lot of kettlebells. Um, and it's not always conventional strong first methods. I really, I really pull from different things I see and feel on the internet, obviously, and my own coaching with Cardigan Mark. So we use grip in the sense that we do a lot of carries. We test the dynamometer. I let people test the dynamometer every other month to kind of measure grip progress because it's a really great way to see if you're getting strong without having to, you know, measure a back squat or what you're weighing on the scale. It's it's a different kind of measure of strength. And we talk about it a lot in terms of it being a marker for longevity, that and getting up and off off the floor with with no hands. We do that stuff. You mentioned a couple of different programming styles or philosophies. You mentioned Dan John's push-pull, squat-hinge, carry, and then Mm -hmm. um, also Strong First. Can you talk about the differences between those and how you approach writing training? You said you do two different training days and then switch it every six weeks. So talk a little bit more in depth about what that means. Yeah, I technically have two different, we'll call them workouts, sessions, programs on the board at any given time. So people are alternating when they come. They'll do one side, then the next time they come, they'll do another side. And they're, they're all full body. It varies. Like sometimes they're every minute on the minute. Sometimes they're choose your deadlift variation. They all, they both will have squat, hinge, push, pull, carry, rotate. I'll throw rotate in there because I think it's an important one. Um, that gets left out sometimes. And then I teach hard style kettlebells, but I'm not only teaching hard style kettlebells in terms of strong first. Like we'll do unconventional swings, like a ribbon swing that I've learned from, from my coach, Mark, and we'll throw in different movements. I kind of blend them both, honestly, and, and pull from other philosophies out there. I like the strong first strength is a skill way of teaching people to be consistent and I like incorporating other things as well and and the biggest piece to the programming is encouraging autonomy which is kind of you know the movement Minneapolis and Jen Sinkler and Dave and Mark that they do a lot of the biofeedback training I don't necessarily teach the biofeedback method but I do give variations and let people figure out what feels best in their body rather than just saying you have to do this type of deadlift today or you have to do this version of a squat because it changes daily and and by person. So how do you teach your clients, especially beginners, how to feel things in their body? When I first opened the squeeze in my head, I had this grand vision of like having everybody come to three intro classes before they took a class. And that would teach them foundations and, and how to choose. And nobody really wanted to do that. And it didn't work because the times never worked. And we, you know, we only have one room. So 
I switched that over this year. So we do one, when, when people are interested in the gym, we do one free session and I call it a strategy session or an intro. I try to stay away from the word assessment. I'll throw in a couple FMS screen things if, if I feel like I need it. Uh, and then I just let people try a class and I give them some parameters to the movements and some modifications just based on, on how they're moving in, in the class. And encourage them to, to try different things and choose what feels best. Um, and it takes time to figure out what, what feels good in your body and what movements might hurt you and what, you know, what you need that day. I don't think that's something you can learn right away. So people do kind of want, they want direction and guidance at first, but giving a couple options and just saying, Hey, try, try this. Or what do you feel when you feel this? So, you know, is it good? Is it, is it bad? Is it hurting? And, and letting them decide really, it, it kind of just builds on itself. With your background in Strong First and the FMS, was there a point that you started to transition or move away from what I would consider the strictness of the Strong First FMS systems to being more person dependent or independent and intentional based on what the individual is feeling? Yeah, I contend, my own personality can tend towards things that are rigid and strict um, because I like structure and I watched myself get injured that way but strong first actually in, in many ways that system helped me you know from an injury and then I ended up finding Mark so when I was when I was first training for strong first I, I ended up trying out kettlebells and going to a user course that was offered through crunch um, when I was when I was in DC and I had dislocated my shoulder four times. I think by the time I found the kettlebell user course, freak accident. I had my dog tied to my wrist and waved my arm walking down the street in DC and, and literally fell over while they pulled it out of the socket. So it wasn't like a, a fitness injury, but I never, I never let it heal fast enough or slow enough. And I kept getting back to, to fitness and I tried CrossFit. Um, and none of the overhead positions worked for me and I kept trying to make it work and I kept having to modify and feeling bad that I was modifying. So ended up back to strong first again with the kettlebell just because I love the kettlebell and the kettlebell really helped heal my shoulder. And then I started, I did the FMS and I started screening people and I was finding that the screens themselves, while they're great, were making people feel a little bit picked apart. And like something was wrong and something needed to be fixed. And that, you know, that happened with, I did NASM corrective exercise too. And, and people, they don't respond well to that. You know, I'm sure I did that so many times in my younger training days, made people feel like they needed to be fixed and something was wrong and, and nobody really does. And they kind of have it in themselves to figure out what feels good if they're given some tools to feel it. So I've, I've went back into it, got back out of it, and now have sort of stepped back and said, okay, if I'm not training athletes and we don't need to deliver an FMS score and people just want to feel better, how, how can we do that and incorporate all of the systems and pull the things that I like from all of them? I think that there is a natural progression, at least in my own experience and talking with other trainers of... In the beginning, as personal trainers, we're giving the client kind of like a mixed bag of everything that we see. And then we sort of tend towards these systems. And then we're very strict with the system. And then at a certain point, we think, 
wow, we're doing all these correctives and it is from what from what you're saying, a little bit jarring to the clients to be put through these assessments. And then we tend more to the let's just strength train again. Yeah, definitely. And it's sure we, we need to make sure people aren't getting hurt. We need to be responsible in mm-hmm. what we're teaching and and how we're teaching it. But there's not just one right way and there and there is like this tendency to overcorrect when you're learning all of these systems and learning all these tools. And I've done it myself. I mean, I still sometimes have to pull myself back. Like, you know, just leave it, leave it alone and they'll figure it out um, as long as they're safe. And yeah, so yeah, there is that. And I, I do think people already are swimming through a sea of misinformation and fitness and strength and nutrition and trying to do what's right. So they, they already are confused. And then if you add the idea that something's wrong with them on top of it and they need to be fixed rather than pushing them toward autonomy or feeling good, it, it, we can do more harm than good. So earlier you mentioned including rotational work in your programming. What are some of the your favorite rotational movements? Yeah, it's something I left out of my own training and, and that... and. Training with, with Cardigan Mark, Colin Cardigan Mark, that's his Instagram <laughs> handle, isn't that messed up? Mark Schneider. <laughs> um, he does a lot of rotation for me, and it's something I've gotten back to. And that, that was part of how I think I, my, my own journey of hurting myself and hurting my back a little bit and hurting my shoulder was because I wasn't adding rotation. I was staying in all these very strict movements and not twisting. And I thought twisting in a deadlift was bad. Um, so I love hockey deadlift variations and for myself I, I Jefferson's never feel good but I've had clients that love Jefferson deadlift and single arm suitcase rotation deadlift so we do a lot of that um and hollow body rolling on the floor and twisting with that also when you throw in all of these rotational movements I don't want to say they're not programmed it frequently but they're definitely something that aren't as frequent as things in the frontal and sagittal plane. So it's kind of fun. Right. Fun. And it's, it's oddly, as Mark says it, like this one, he'll send me some weird thing. I'm like, oh, I love that. It's oddly satisfying. They are oddly satisfying. And yeah. that's, that's the feedback I get from clients a lot of time. times. They're just, wow, this deadlift is weird, but it feels so good. And like, that's great. <laughs> good. Right. Do more. I've gone back and forth. You know, I've heard the a philosophy that if you can't do it in the frontal plane, then why even bother with some of the other planes? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it depends. It always depends. Mm-hmm. I hate, people hate that answer, right? I no, I, I think <laughs> it depends. Yeah, that's real life. <laughs> it really does. If it, if it feels good to them and, and it's like, you know, if your stance is asymmetrical, why do we, why do you think that you have to stand with your toes like straight on a line? Do we ever do that in real life? No. Yeah. Um, how many times have you looked down and seen your feet like perfectly symmetrical? Well, I don't know if it's that many times. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I believe that. It, it's sort of one of, one of the really awesome trainers at my gym, Molly, she is FRC. Uh, an FRC practitioner and her and I talk about this all the time. And we, we have a class on the squeeze schedule called Gumby and it's sort of a blend of FRC and strength and, and mobility and movement. And that's another system that is very rigid, but can we give people some of the, some of the cars and some of the isometrics and can they learn aware body awareness from that without you know going through the, the linear progression? I think so. 
I would love to get into FRC in one second, but I want to make a correction. I think I said uh, movements in the frontal plane, and I just wanted to to say sagittal. I, sagittal plane. Yes. I just wanted to mention yeah. that just because I know that people will be listening. So yeah. I wanted to put that yeah. correction out there. Um, I know so, what you meant. Yes. Yes. I know. I know you did. Um, I just wanted to make sure that <laughs> I put the correction in. With FRC, how did you bring that into your gym? Was that something that your coach wanted to go and take and then you put the class in your gym or was that something that you knew was a missing piece that could help your clientele? I knew nothing about it. I still don't know much about it. I leave those classes sort of up to her and I, you know, I take them often. I, when I met Molly, she was a client at my gym and she had already gone through FRC stuff. Uh, so she, she put me through an FRA assessment just kind of for fun. And I love, I'm a workshop junkie. Like I want to go to all the things mm-hmm. and I want to learn all the systems. And then again, pick, pick the pieces that I, that I see working for, for my group of clients. Um, so I, I suggested, cause people often say, you know, should we do yoga? Yes. If you like it, should we stretch more? Yeah. If you need it, 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 it depends. Um, but I had asked her if she would put together some type of class that incorporated the squat hinge, push, pull, carry rotate movements that we're doing at the gym and also teach people different different cars different pails and rails so she does like a theme for a month like this past month with thoracic and then blends it with the program it's pretty cool so you brought up uh your coaching staff how did you hire your coaches what what went into that development yeah so this is this is a hard thing right i started i was we have no money we're doing it alone and i'm teaching everything and i had too many classes on the schedule i was a little ambitious Obviously, on paper, I was like, yeah, we're going to have 435, 36, 30 every night. And you can't do that when you're opening a gym because <laughs> you don't have clients yet. <laughs> so I scaled that way back. Zach was my first coach, and I met him. We just had coffee because he was a strong first guy in the area. And it, like a tremendous help to me because he shared the, the kettlebell language that, that I use and know. And Molly and Jess were clients first. and. Um, some of my mentors that I've talked to over the past year have always said, you know, you'll have people that really buy into your culture and get what you're doing. And those people will understand how to connect with members and will want to be part of your team because that's why they're there. The things that you're doing are the things that they like and they're getting something from it. So yeah, they were both, they, those two were both clients first before, before training. And how did bringing them on go in terms of transitioning from you coaching? Yeah, um, we're meeting weekly. Right now we've got on a, on a good rhythm with that. Coaches and gym owners, I think we don't get into this. Like I got into it by accident, but I, I love people. I love helping if I can. And that it does come out in coaching style and in the business. So it, it was just kind of an easy transition, honestly, from coaching them to working with them. and. The people I like, I want to hang out with them outside of the gym too. Mm-hmm. I've worked on my own. We'll talk about powerful boundaries, I'm sure. But I've worked on my own boundary setting and all of that this past year, setting expectations up front and, and being clear about the gym culture and, and what, you know, what the important things are and what we're doing. It's been, it's been kind of seamless, honestly, I should say. It's, knock on wood, it's been easy. <laughs> That's amazing that to hear. So let's talk a little bit about grip training before we get into powerful boundaries. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of experience in it and it 
anytime I do like a very heavy farmer's carry for a long time, I feel so uh-huh. defeated. So can you talk about how you train grit, <laughs> benefits and the challenges? <laughs> <laughs> defeated as in you don't like it or you're just tired? Both. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's the one lift that, that crushes my soul. <laughs> and, and that, that probably means that I need to do it more frequently. <laughs> I find it incredibly probably. painful. <laughs> yeah. yeah so grip, I mean, you know, this grip is super nervous system intensive, mm-hmm. so you can overtrain it kind of easily. And I've gotten back to rock climbing recently and I'm seeing that. <laughs> um, so there's three types of grip. Technically, there's probably more than three, but just to be brief, there's the crush grip when you think about grippers. There's pinch if you think about holding a like a burger um, opposed to your fingers. And there's support grip, like carries, armor carries, deadlift bars, kettlebell swings, hanging. Um, and, and usually, people are missing one of those three in their grip training. So we do a lot of support grip. Uh, when we're doing a lot of kettlebell swings and pull-ups, right, and farmer's carries. But we don't do a lot of pinching. Uh, so in, in the gym and in grip competitions, those three things will usually appear. Uh, and there has been, you know, my, my jump into to competing in grip, I'm not necessarily like a very competitive person when it comes to like sports. I like to compete against myself. So doing some of the grip, uh, competitions at first a couple of years ago when I when I had first met Gil was really weird because there's not a lot of women that do it at all. Um, it's sort of like a garage sport still. There's like a lot of dysfunction in the committees and people holding on to old records that they don't have videos for and like old devices. So when Gil and I started doing it, one of his one of his products that he made when he made his, his company barrel strength systems was the flask. And he made it because I couldn't lift the Euro device, which was this archaic pancake looking structure that was 50 pounds without weights on it. And I couldn't compete in the event because I couldn't pick it up empty. And that's a pinch device. So it's not very far along like grip sport. Um, but, in the gym, we incorporate all three of those things, those three types of grip to kind of, and, and recovery. Like we use dexterity ball to recovery and work extensor bands a little bit. I would say if you, it's painful, figure out if it's hurting your hands or if it's painful mentally and maybe, maybe keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably painful mentally and I just need to do it more frequently. <laughs> what are some of the benefits to training your grip? Well, if you can't, if you can't hold it, you can't pick it up off the ground. Um, I did a little bit of powerlifting and I was constantly doing the mixed grip thing and always doing my good side or my better side uh, and, and ended up kind of messing with my shoulder. So the stronger your hands are, the stronger everything else is. And the more tension you can generate in your hands, the more you can engage your lats and swing better and hold on to things better. It's also a, it's also a really easy thing to see progress, which can be really fun for clients to, you know, start doing a farmer's carry with 12 kilogram bells and then all of a sudden realize they can hold 20s like in the, in the month. So that, that is something else. And it's a good, uh, we do a lot of bottoms up stuff at the gym. It's a great, it's a great assessment tool. If you give someone a kettlebell and see what they can hold bottoms up one side versus the other, it's a great way to kind of 
see asymmetry without doing a full screen and, and kind of work on fixing that. And so how do you progress the, say, for, let's use the farmer's carry. How would you progress that with a client? We'll let people do a two-minute carry. And, and the sort of the general rule is you can carry it around the gym for two minutes and it's not painful and you're not, you're not really struggling. You can keep going. It's time to go up a size. And we use that kind of as the marker for when, for when to progress. Um, isometrics work really well with things like hinge training on the flask, which we use a little bit of um, just timed, timed holds. And so instead of lots of volume, because it is neuromuscularly difficult. Right. You can make big strides with just a little bit. So definitely submax efforts, isometric holds, weight, lighter uh-huh. weight than you think you should be carrying. <laughs> you can really jack yourself up trying to, to max out on, on grip. Grip equipment, I've seen it happen to Gil. I've seen it happen in grip competitions too. But slow buildups for it. Um, my grip has gotten a lot stronger training at like a 75%, you know, max for with, with holds and just increasing the time of the holds over the course of like four weeks. So what does it look like when somebody does max out? A finger, like a, a webbing tear, skin oh, tear, okay. or a, pull, a pulley. <laughs> something like that because it's friction right it's all friction yeah. grips and like chalk it depends on how how moist your hands are and what you know how much chalk you're using there's all sorts of factors that go into it it's pretty interesting um and and for the other thing we do do at the gym is we test the hang so we'll have people hold just one arm or two arm two arm first but then progress it to one arm on the pull-up bar and that's kind of where I start people training on pull-ups is just can you hang for a minute cool let's start let's start progressing that so when is the next southern squeeze competition we usually do the southern squeeze grip competitions in January that was when the first one started so we haven't really planned that yet Um, we will be having a King Kong competition which is an international grip competition and we host the leg of it every year. And that may not actually be at our gym. It might be at, a, I think it's going to be at CrossFit Gallatin, which is a little bit outside of Nashville. And that happens, I think it's October 28th. Everybody competes all over the world. There's different, different venues for it. So let's shift the focus to boundaries. You talk a lot about boundaries mm. on your Instagram. Can you mm-hmm. give us some thoughts on how you started talking about that and how it became, I guess, how it became important to you? Yeah, it's something I struggled with my whole life, like being a people pleaser and saying yes too much and trying to do too many things and not sticking up for myself. It's something I've kind of learned the hard way and Erin Brown and and her book Sovereign have been two, her as a person, she's amazing, have been two things that sort of shifted something for me, getting to know her and working with her and reading her stuff just about what boundaries are and what it means to have loose and rigid boundaries and how we can be both and we can change um, depending on the circumstance and situation and, and learning like what, what we tend towards. I lean towards like in my, in my life, I've had loose boundaries and trying to please everybody and letting people in. And I've learned about that from her a lot. Yeah. And it's helped meeting her along the, along the road of opening this gym has helped me with creating the gym and, and ultimately the better boundaries I have, the better boundaries clients have and the happier everybody is. 
So that takes me to asking you about the Powerful Boundaries Seminar. How did that come about? And how did you put together the people that were presenting? Yeah, that's, that was an interesting that was an interesting story. And I, it, it, I met Tig. I went to Atlanta to take a women's firearms class. I lived in D.C. for a long time. I would not consider myself a gun person. One thing I learned moving to Tennessee was that you couldn't really have a gun in, in D.C. Uh, moving to Tennessee was that lots of people carry guns and the laws are different here. And being a woman, owning a business, being in a building alone a lot started to get me thinking about, you know, what, what would it mean to go learn about guns and possibly get a carry permit and, and possibly think about this a different way. And I ended up driving to Atlanta with a friend of mine, taking Tig's class. Gil had found Tig online for her workshops. She was one of the only, only people doing firearms 101 classes for, for women only. So I drove down there and took the class and I was so inspired by her story and just her approach to teaching that um, it just kind of stayed in the back of my mind. And I think I read Aaron's book and then I was like, oh, I saw a workshop that Aaron had done in Connecticut with Rachel Blackgrave and it was self-defense and, and boundaries. And I was like, this would be a great combination. And what I realized after just reaching out to them both and saying, hey, would you want to do this? We could incorporate all three of these things, fitness, firearms, uh, personal safety. Event planning is hard as hell. <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's like, a, it's a full-time job. Uh, so, and, and people, just because someone is an expert in their field, like when you combine people, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. So it was a real hard sell. It was a really hard thing to get people to come to. I had, I had friends be like, I don't do guns. I can't believe you do guns. And I'm like, I just want to talk about it. I want to talk about it with, you know, a bunch of women and, and have conversations around important topics. A friend of my friend, Megan, who manages a social media company in town called Phoenix. Like I had, I met with her and it was getting close to the event. And I was like, what do we do? How do I, how do I change the language and get people interested in this? Um, and, and she helped me a lot. Just, you know, you've got to tell people what they're going to learn. You've got to, you know, give away some tickets, do some giveaways. So it ended up being good, but not what I thought it would be. How what was the response from the attendees? The attendees, I did a feedback survey. I love feedback surveys. I'm with clients all the time. Um, I think that's, that's important. Was was great. They loved it. The people that came, some of them came and were very like skeptical friends of mine who come and were like, I don't know about this, but they were so happy that they did show up. Aaron is an incredible speaker and has a way with words that like no one I've ever met. And, and Tig is so passionate about, about her stuff and that such a great teacher too. I think you couldn't help but be interested. And, and she always starts her workshops off with, um, and not everybody knows this because they look at her Instagram and they just see guns, right? And with like, I don't care if you ever touch a gun. I just want you to know this is an option. I'm going to teach you how to use it or, or what the parts are in case you ever come across one. That's her approach. So now that you have done a little bit of work with firearms and you brought up the fact that you're at the gym, do you have a, a carry permit? What, what was the outcome of that? 
Yeah. So I haven't finished the process yet, but I did go to Citizen Safety Academy, which is here, and take the carry permit course. It's something I'm I'm still afraid of, and it's it's something I've learned. And I, you know, this is this, this lesson that always comes back. It's a lifestyle. If you're going to carry a firearm, it's a lifestyle. Like you have to change your clothes. You have to know the laws. You have to be willing to have that responsibility. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm ready for that, but I, you know, I have been in situations where I've been in a building alone and, and someone has tried to break in or things like that, that have kind of shifted my perspective and what it means to be a woman. You know, I jog alone. I know what it's like to be in a park by yourself and get catcalled and screamed at. So there, there is a safety factor to it. And, and the idea that like, no one's coming to save you. Like I've called the police before, right? It takes a long time for them to get there. Uh, so there's that. So it's something I think that I'll finish, but haven't, haven't finished all the steps. And do you think the end result in when you finish and you do carry a, a gun, do you think that alone will make you feel safer? Yeah, I don't know. Cause I haven't fully committed to that, to that lifestyle yet and like accepted it. So it's like, I'm in the process of exploring what it means to, to be, to be in that position. I do carry pepper spray when I run in the woods mm-hmm. and I don't, you know, and that does give me a sense of, you know, I feel good to have something. I do practice situational awareness um, and, and just, and really watch, you know, where I park my car, where, you know, if my head's in my phone when I get in there, I do all that. But yeah, no, I, I don't know that it will, it will take away what it, what it feels like to be, be a woman and, you know, in the world that, that isn't safe. You mentioned situational awareness as a practice. Can you go into that mm-hmm. a little bit more? Was there a moment where you realized this is something that I really have to do a little bit of research on to figure out how to be more aware in my surroundings? I lived in DC for a long time alone. I've had friends that have had, you know, horrible things happen to them and and being being alone and you know, locking your doors and looking around, like, I, I think I just, I realized a long time ago that, that I just needed to keep my, I'm a small statue, stature person, like I'm short and have been through like, you know, training, self-defense trainings where they talk about like where, how your hair is and like what, what to do if you hear, hear things behind you. And, and I've been to like strong first combat. I've done a couple things like that, that talk about situational awareness so I just make it part of my part of my routine you know part of like the things that I do locking doors not you know looking behind my car looking not at my phone when I get in my car like walking you know when when I do lock up the gym or I have a class of of people I make sure everyone gets to their car like I know where everybody is before you know before leaving or they're walking out to a parking lot together just being very aware of your surroundings and building mm-hmm. on each each new situation. Yeah, and I mean, you can't prevent everything, but you can be the more aware you are and the, and the more you are aware of the people that are around you and like the things that you see regularly when you're, you know, what time you're walking down the road, if there's strange car, things like that, just mm-hmm. noticing. Not having distractions. Yeah, and it's it's a mindset, right? It's being present. <laughs> it's what we what we practice all day at the gym and then in my life it's trying to be present 
and not and not distracted, which is hard nowadays with all the stuff happening on the, like on our phones and and in the news and in the world and everyone's on information overload. But but slowing down and just you know being in the moment. Like I don't walk my dogs with headphones or talk on the phone. And it's, but it's it's a practice, right? So we're coming up on the end of the podcast and I've been asking every guest some of the lightning round questions. So I will start with what is the most memorable thing you've ever eaten? So I've searched all week for the name of this dish and I can't find it and I hope I find it and can send it to you. Um, there's a woman who, who lives in Cambodia and sometimes is in Nashville because she's writing a memoir. Her book is going to be called Slow Noodles and it's about, she tells her story of fleeing Cambodia in 1970 through food and cooking and sharing food with people because she doesn't like to talk about it as much. Her name is Chanta. And I took a cooking class with her and some friends um, recently this past year called the Slow Noodles Cooking Class. And she served, we, we all cooked together. We cooked uh, Cambodian, traditional Cambodian food together. And she brought out this dessert at the end and it was the most interesting mix of sweet and savory. It was a dessert. Uh, it had coconut milk and like probably palm sugar syrup and this little, it was almost like a bun that was filled with like mung beans and savory stuff. I don't even know exactly what it was. And I was trying to find out, I even messaged her on Instagram, um, but it was the most, interesting and I want to say wonderful dessert I've ever had and the story you know and the experience of all of that made made it even better it sounds delicious sweet and savory together it was (laughs) yeah it was and it was different and it it was yeah I can't even describe it but I'd have to have it again but I'll send it to you the name (laughs) what are three people books or podcasts that have been influential to you I love these questions too. So a really good friend of mine named Allison, who I met when I was training at, I worked for TSI for eight years, like Washington Sports Club, New York Sports Club, that company. She was the first person who ever looked at me and said, you should write your workouts down. You should keep a journal. And she had this like training journal and she was bench pressing 135 pounds. And I was like 23. And I was like, she's such a badass. <laughs> And she really inspired me to to think about my training as not just a workout, which like happens somewhere to all of us that get in like down the fitness rabbit hole, right? But you know, I was like, oh yeah, I'm not. I don't need to just be smaller or work out on a on a stairmaster. I can lift weights and write it down. Um, so she was she was somebody. Phil Scarito, um was the was one of the first amazing coaches I ever had strong first and who got me into kettlebells and who helped me with my grip and um turned me on to to heart style stuff and he he's an amazing coach an amazing person and um I had a great yoga teacher too named Shannon Von Burns who was somebody who just brought all this healing energy and and patience and meet you where you are attitude to a room that I, I just remember taking her class and I want to, I want to be like you someday. I want to do this to a room someday. She was phenomenal. I'm rereading. I talked about Sovereign Aaron Brown's book a little bit, just in terms of boundaries and like all of her queen shit stuff and giving voice to 
all the things so many women are going through um, now. And then I'm rereading Man's Search for Meaning, which is one that comes up, I think, a lot. Victor Frankel. I reread that one every once in a while. And um, fitness-wise, you know, The Back Mechanic, Sue McGill, that's a really great one. And my, my favorite book that's not fitness related that's actually classified as like science fiction it's called the sparrow a woman named mary russell um it's not science fiction at all though it's about aliens and music and planets and visiting another planet but it's uh, it's really about it's the nature of good and evil and what happens when we try to do the right thing and create tons of harm it's kind of like a philosophical really it's just a really interesting story oh, i'll have to check that out yeah, it's a weird book, but it's, it's great. So then talking about aliens, <laughs> if someone came to Earth from another <laughs> planet, <laughs> what is one thing you'd tell them? To go away. Um, <laughs> I'm getting that a lot. <laughs> right? I bet. Um, I would ask them to try to, to seek to understand what, what us human beings were doing down here, because if they can technologically get here, we, we better hope that they're not here to hurt us. <laughs> um, so this just shows some mercy. Um, Maria, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, I love learning about all of the grip and getting a bigger understanding of the Southern Squeeze. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. To support Maria, check out the Southern Squeeze when you're in Nashville. And when you're not, Follow along with her on the IG at Maria Bassetta and at the Southern Squeeze. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, or buy a butt bag at muscles to the masses.com.